Welcome to The Witch's Diagnostic. I'm Dawn Dancing Otter. Every week we talk to healers, bards, poets, artists, and activists in your community and people who are healing and changing lives. This recording is taking place on Lekwungen traditional territory. These are the traditional homelands of what are known now as the Esquimalt and Songhees First Nations. This is unceded and stolen land, and I am a settler. And my hope is that I continue to learn, to grow, and to do my best to walk in a good way on these lands. This week on The Witch's Diagnostic, I'll be speaking in depth with Ace Hicks about the Me Too movement, her experience within the Me Too movement and the Hollywood trenches. And we'll be speaking extensively about sexual abuse. And if that is a trigger for you, please look after yourself in any way you feel you might need to. I'm interviewing the wonderful Ace Hicks. Ace, I'd love for you to let us know how you walk in the world. Absolutely. Hello, everyone. I am Ace Hicks. I have recently relocated back to Vancouver Island, which is where I was actually born and raised. And how I walk in the world, I I would hope that I would be described as a free spirit and uh, with a strong desire to share myself creatively and intentionally trying to bring more light to the world and everything that I do. Definitely a work in progress, <laughs> but acting was my first love. Uh, fell into photography, became sort of my hobby profession, and writing has always been my secret love. And now I'm in the process of bringing all three of those together through various projects, starting a new portal soon to help other female filmmakers who have you know been through the Hollywood toxicity trenches and uh, writing my first book and really expanding my photography and doing uh, intentional portraiture work right now so lots of exciting stuff going on in reading your bio ace I noticed that a lot of your acting gigs have very witchy titles (laughs) and seem like really witchy projects. And so I was thinking how fascinating that we get to talk together here on The Witch's Diagnostic, um, that you've been, you know, kind of weaving that in your your work in the world already. Yeah, I wish that was more true. A lot of those are just kind of funny names of some of those TV shows that filmed in Toronto and whatnot. But definitely as I've uh, learned a lot more about myself and expanded upon my own spiritual growth that has definitely informed my art and the type of uh, filmmaking and creative endeavors that I'm sort of naturally gravitating towards, for sure. In terms of um, your photography, do you have a viewpoint that you are that you like to communicate about uh, your subjects? I really love to sort of approach my photography more like almost filmmaking like directing style I really find that it's sort of for me is a fun task of of bringing out the best in the subject doing whatever I can to just gently nurture people to sort of shine their most authentic truth or self um I kind of just feel like the voyeur in a way like I I I think that's what I love about it. I, my favorite thing is 
sort of the more whimsical intuitive side of photography that gets me really excited. I'm a lot less technical and I'm more about trying to really connect with and see my subject as as I see them, but also as I believe that they see themselves or want to be seen and really trying to nurture their soul to feel safe to, to make an appearance so that you can kind of capture something that does tell a, a story um, organically. So do you find that there that's a form of healing to take pictures like that from that perspective? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I think as well from like the acting perspective and being in environments where I just felt so like objectified or it was so about the vanity of things. I really try to make sure that in my photography, it's, it has a, a deeper sensuality to it or like, like that storytelling piece, because I don't ever want to make anyone feel that kind of like, yeah, like commodifying someone to try to just get a brand or a product or an image. Um, I kind of have my own in, ingrained resentment and fear towards that because of the environments I've been in where I was made to sort of feel so uncomfortable in my own skin or, or like I had to offer something up of myself. So yeah, I think maybe I haven't thought about it that much, but I would say, yeah, there probably definitely is a, a deeper healing piece there why I'm drawn to it. Did you want to tell me a little bit more? That sounds so interesting what you shared there about feeling objectified or feeling like you were part of marketing and branding and that kind of stuff. Can you share a little bit more about yeah, that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think from the very start of my acting career at a young age, my very my very first official gig or booking um, into a TV show ended up being a pretty life-changing and uh, traumatic experience for me because I was actually uh, raped by the creator and producer of that show. Um, and it was a really, it was sort of the scenario was that I was going down to meet and talk about the script and I don't want to get into too many hairy details because it, as far as like, you know, trigger warning or content warning, it, you know, it was a pretty um, devastating experience to go through at only 18 years of age. Um, I was mostly unconscious for the whole experience. There was a lot of alcohol involved and I hadn't really ever even drank before. Um, and the conversation the day after was, you know, nobody can ever know about this. My career is just getting started. And sort of that moment at 18 years of age, I really just kind of swallowed all of that, that shame myself and carried that with me, like all through my 20s in a way that only now I can look back and realize how, how pivotal that uh, sort of inciting incident was for me in my own career. Um, but right from the get-go with acting, it's always, most of the projects and scripts involved some kind of sexualization of my character. It was always the ingenue stuff, you know, based on just my natural physique and my natural look. 99% of the stuff I was auditioning for was to be hot or to be a certain way. And you, and I noticed that even on sets, like, you know, even grief from the wardrobe person, if you didn't fit the size zero um, and, oh, you know, you're going to have to probably, you know, lose a few pounds, like all the kind of bullshit stuff that you hear about. Like I really did experience every corner, every turn that I went about. Um, and then, you know, and then you do book the job where you're in the short skirt and you're in the American Pie. I, I had done a part in like American Pie 6 and, and it's it was kind of horrific looking back. I mean, at the time I thought it was fun and exciting because I was in this whole new big world. But in hindsight, it was all of these creepy L.A. producers and all of these like 18 to 24 year old up and coming models and actresses that were invited out to these parties with them every single night and just drugs and 
promiscuity and just kind of exactly the nightmare that you would maybe expect. But I mean, I, I didn't really know how to protect myself or what to expect. I just was like, okay, I'm going to, this is my dream. I'm going to make it, you know, I'm going to, but, uh, but yeah, needless to say, it's it, my entire career. There was so many occasions where I didn't know how to stand up for myself, but especially by female, whether it was the hair and makeup artist or the wardrobe people being snarky. Um, and especially now that I purposely choose to keep my hair natural I get so much grief from casting directors, from agents, from hairstylists having a fit on set and then producers being like, okay, well, we'll put a hat on you or something. Like we got to hide, you know, like gray hair is the worst thing in the universe. Like we got to hide that, you know? So there still is a long way to go, I'd say, in that side of um, of the acting industry and of Hollywood and, and just the sort of totally archaic beauty standards that are still shoved down all of our throats that definitely need to be smashed. I find it a little sad uh, from my own heart that, that that's still reality. And I'm sad that that happened for you, knowing your sweet spirit that um, I know you're a resilient soul, but I also know that would have been um, very traumatizing. And, I, and hearing about your story with uh, your experience of being violated, I, I'm so sorry that happened to you. And I know that we're now talking about this a number of years later, but yeah, I'm really sorry that happened to you. And I move with you in solidarity around you reclaiming your power and creating a, a new possibility based on what has happened to you so that it can be a service to us as women and to the community at large. Thank you for saying that. And yeah, absolutely. I, I feel like the, the strongest access to my own healing is, is turning it into my, like a bigger why and, and how, and realizing and recognizing like, okay, I don't want any other person to en endure this. And this is within our realm of possibility to, rebuild stronger healthier narratives for all of us this is you know it's devastating not just for women but for men as well and, and the way we naturally exploit one another and our or sort of live in, in systems that naturally create so much um yeah pain and suffering for so many it's just yeah just going through it myself just has given me a stronger why as to you know really trying to you know leverage my own journey and healing to try to help others as much as possible. So tell me about um, your project, your plan to have these greater conversations uh, around uh, hashtag me too. And, and what, ex what did you describe it as uh, Hollywood yeah. uh, trenches yeah. in the Hollywood trenches? Um, well, the Me Too movement for me was a complex um, experience. I don't know how much details you want me to go into. Um, I actually haven't even written and published my, I mean, I've written the book, but I just haven't published it yet about my Harvey Weinstein story and experiences, um, but I'm happy to still share about it. Um, definitely a strange experience to know the poster boy of Me Too personally. Um, and my experiences with him, sadly, I can also recognize were quite possible and normalized because of the fact that I had been raped at 18. Um, I think that was sort of like the initial trauma that even allowed for this sort of repetition or this loop to happen where I um, 
was involved in other similar experiences. But I mean, as weird as it sounds, uh, about I guess it was October 2017 when all of the allegations first broke about Harvey Weinstein. And I had actually seen him as recently as that September he, um, at TIFF. So, you know, a month later, all of this stuff comes out. And I was really freaking out because up until that point, I would sort of just buried my weird experiences with him as like, nobody will ever know about this. This will be like a secret that I, I carry to my grave. And also having a relationship with him where at the same token, as predatory and monstrous as this human being was, I had known him for over five years. And after five years of knowing someone, even sometimes the most predatory people are the most charming. And in a sense, that's sort of how Harvey operated in his world. Um, so yeah, it was a really confusing time. And I had a conversation with him on the phone after all the allegations broke. And basically, it was like, you're such a good person. I'm your friend. Let me help you. Let's do something good for women. And I remember thinking at the time, like, okay, that's insane. But the fact that you want to do good, I, I do trust that about him and about you. Like at the time, at least I trusted that. Like, okay, you're right. Let's launch something. Let's do something good. And I hadn't really thought about it for another year or two. And then with all of the, like, the daily like media and then trying to face my own like reality of what I had experienced with him and played out in my mind and seek all sorts of different healing. I finally got to a point where I was like, okay, now he's behind bars, but what next? And I became friends with some of the other women who went to trial and like, you know, acquaintances more casually and stuff online and stuff. But it's sort of like, but what next? Like there's no place truly to focus on healing and restorative justice and other ways of moving forward. It's like in the system of law, it's just, it's, it's so, it's so archaic and so black and white, but where's the actual conversations about how we can reclaim our sacred sexuality? How do we actually heal? Like I've been doing all of this work in so many different ways to try to heal myself, exploring all sorts of modalities, but I just really didn't feel like there was that much, um, support or willingness or openness to have the kind of even more vulnerable conversations about our sexuality and how we kind of gotten into this place in the first place. Like, why is this something that keeps happening systemically and how come more is not being done to um, heal these areas? And that definitely just got me into a sort of mindset of like, okay, well, if it doesn't exist out there, then I better maybe create it myself. So the whole concept is just I want to create a portal or a foundation or a fund, um, a movement, whatever it becomes. I kind of want it to just take on its own life and just let myself be of service to it and see what I can create by hopefully really putting a lot of energy and focus into um, using storytelling in a positive way to create new, new positive narratives for women. And also like have this fantasy of like sweatpants on a red carpet or like, like not dyeing your hair, like no makeup, like not that there's anything against that. I love dressing up once in a while too. So it's not about that. I'm like anti that side of the glamor, but just this sort of environment and obsession and pursuit of perfection. And then these like strange beauty ideals and, and, and for all the women who feel like that's the only way to be loved or successful, I want to like create another opportunity to, to just show how beautiful and powerful women are in so many ways. Uh, it doesn't have to be just this, one way that has been contrived for so long and that kind of really imprisons into a not 
feel good version of, you know, in my own realization now of some of the more like wildness and incredible power and visceral energy that women carry. I would love to have that be included, you know, in Hollywood's view of women. Thank you so much for, um, for sharing all of that piece because, and there's so much that you've said here that I could um, unpack individually, teach uh, priestess initiation work uh, and that some of the things that we move into unpacking around uh, the trauma that women carry around image and the perpetual youth uh, worship of of the woman's body that really the beautiful ideal that's out there is it seems to be in ages like between 15 and 18 uh with like zero you know blemish with zero like cellulite with zero anything that almost perpetuate the idea that the beauty ideal is mm-hmm. a child uh, rather than rather than actually like a full grown woman who, you know, no matter what her body type is, probably has lots of blemishes and lots of, you know, cellulite and lots of things that women, full grown women have because we live in our bodies and our bodies are impacted by mm-hmm. the environment. And I've noticed that image piece is so damaging. It also really creates this narrative around the beauty piece is the only power you have. Like that is the greatest tool you have in the world. Know that that's something that gets impressed upon even the, you know, the youngest of us, you know, little, little, little kids, friends who have little children, the, the daughters are like, oh, isn't she pretty? You know, isn't she, she looks like she, she looks like a baby, you know, that kind of so cherubic and then the boys are like oh he looks like his dad and and I'm like wow you know still <laughs> hey <laughs> maybe there's yeah, something once I'm forward two steps back but yeah I know the industry definitely that's exactly what it was it's like I've gone from like broken ingenue this powerless entity that you know I felt I had to give myself away like to, to re- relearning rewiring in myself to be a sovereign woman yeah, it's definitely something that begins and in your young and is perpetuated sort of mostly, I think, subconsciously by so many of us, because that's the thing is it is so systemic. Do you have any ideas or thoughts around uh, restorative justice versus uh, or like atonement or even like acts of restoration versus things like canceling people that are so famous that they have these gigantic platforms and, um, and so much money and power. Do you have any ideas around that we could have happen? Hmm. I have thought about this a lot. And in my own experience of like, what would I want? What would I need? What would it feel like to get in front of Ray Weinstein and have him say, I'm sorry, work through all. I mean, because right now it's just all the legal bullshit and the millions of dollars and all the other people who actually press charges, they're all walking away with settlements but no one's happy and it's just all this it's this world that's so foreign to me that I can't make sense of because it's like that's not what my heart wants that's not what my soul wants I would love my own way the way that I experience reality I would want for his healing 
as, as much as I want my own healing. I don't have like a, a vengeful part of me. Um, I've sometimes questioned that and been like, okay, is that just some kind of coping mechanism? And I need to actually access my like anger that I'm terrified of. So I, I'm not actually being fully authentic and vulnerable about how I feel about this person because I'm still sugarcoating it for my own ability to tolerate it. I, I mean, I do still, it's like a work in progress. I'm still trying to figure that out. But cancel culture to me just feels like it just takes the air out of the room. Like who are we as a culture and as a people if we can't disagree with each other but still have respect enough to listen, to learn, to hear, to hear, to grow. I mean, I think predators are a real problem, but I would say most predators and abusers are stuck in their own trauma loops and psychoses or spells or whatever they're under. And, you know, I guess I would love if more people had, it doesn't seem like a satisfying way to create healing. Uh, maybe for some, maybe for some people, that's what they're like, okay, yeah, I want this person locked away forever. I want their freedom taken away. I want them punished for what they have done. But I've definitely always felt like more drawn towards restorative justice. I'm, I'm still new to it. So it's like the four pillars of what makes restorative justice possible and needing a community. And I, I mean, I would love if we had a totally different system to, yeah, I don't, I don't know what that would look like. I would love if there was like, you know, cause going the, the court of law and then a rape trial, it's like, there's nothing more awful to endure probably navigate these things, but I'm not sure it would even look like other than I know in my own case, I would think deeper healing would take place in the actual exchange and apology that can happen between two people if it was meaningful. I don't necessarily think that in the way I was even hurt by Harvey that he had a vicious agenda. I think he himself was just living out his patterns and, and his life the way he was so accustomed to that I don't think he even necessarily knew the kind of pain he was inflicting upon upon the women that he was taking so much from definite lack of empathy for the people that he was harming and you know people who who harm like that are so dangerous because they're they've already dehumanized the people that they're harming like they don't allow for the humanity your humanity to be observed by them in their want of whatever they want from you and so that that's so damaging. And my wondering is when there is a lack of empathy, and I don't know the answer to this either, but when there is such a deep lack of empathy, a person, if they have the capacity to move into atoning acts, um, or if they have the capacity to access that, like that's an open question mark on my end, for sure. I think it's a question mark still for me and always will be between the battle between, okay, is this person actually a sociopathic narcissist? In the moments that I did feel this person, believe they were a good person by deluding myself. Um, and I think the only hope that I've experienced in my own path was turning my healing inwards as much as possible and not actually needing or requiring anything ultimately, which sucks because it's a lot of extra work and labor. And I wish that I don't want anyone to ever have to go through this. Obviously it's exhausting and it's, it, it, it's 
not been fun. <laughs> you know, it's been pretty grueling and I have a lot of compassion and empathy for people who are also still, you know, going, navigating their own journeys through abuse and assault and rape and, and all of these things. But yeah, it's uh, restorative justice and could be a beautiful option in certain scenarios, but even then, will it be abused by people who are just wired in a way to exploit others or take from others or hurt others? You know, I don't, I don't know how to navigate. Witches Diagnostic Podcast will return in just a moment. Did you know that you can support this work as a community member through patreon.com, the Witches Diagnostic, for as little as $5 a month? Your contribution will help to make sure that we continue to produce these weekly podcasts with great community leaders, healers, and bards, poets, and artists. Thanks for joining us today. The impact that the women who brought um, Harvey Weinstein to justice, uh, they had all been canceled, had, or many of them had been. You know, their, their careers were hugely impacted uh, prior to coming forward and bringing him to justice. And, and so I think about it going in, the, in both of those directions, you know, that, that the impact upon the victims have been that, that they had so much, uh, they, they lost so much in the process more so than the, the violating act and the trauma that they carried from that, but that the repercussions upon them, you know, financially and uh, in their career and in their, in their goals in life. I think you're right. I think that it's a deep consideration how we could create uh, restorative justice where it wouldn't be uh, an abuse of the, the, the victims or the people that who are coming forward with their, um, with their stories, yeah. you know? So I think it is really challenging. Yeah. And cancel sure. culture too is kind of, um, it, it's tricky. I recently um, was gifted a pass to one of Tony Robbins, um, like virtual workshops. And I remember I told my sister and she was kind of horrified because she's like, I thought Tony was canceled. Like, didn't you know about all of these allegations? And I actually didn't. I somehow had like missed that he had had some allegations against him and stuff. And I, I sort of just said to my sister, like, I don't, necessarily need to cancel someone for something that they a mistake that they made 10 or 15 years ago if they have hopefully done what they could to address it um it's so tricky because it's like I believe victims as a victim myself like that's obviously like one of the most important things to me is like of course I will I believe victims but I also don't believe that someone should always that like if you make one misstep and you harm someone that like you never that you're deplatformed or that you're that's it for you you know like people we, we grow together collectively and in the 90s think of how toxic it was even back then of course so you're tony robbins and you have all this power and you're i'm, I'm sure he behaved absolutely awfully at times and that's not to excuse it or or negate what he had done at the time but, you know, in 2021, if he still is, has these offerings and I just, for me, it just, I don't align with like completely canceling someone because of one misstep. Like I want to hear how they dealt with it and I want to hear what they did, but I 
feel like cancel culture is a really dangerous thing and it doesn't actually then demand accountability or people to face the things. It's like, I don't want to just cancel someone. I want to create more accountability instead of canceling them and, and see how they deal with the opportunity to face their the harms they've caused people or the wrongs that they've done. Yeah, that's the trick really is, is the person um, in question prepared to face that in a, in a way that demonstrates in their conduct and not just in their, their spin or their PR, but in their conduct that they have learned and changed based on being aware now that that thing that they did mm-hmm. harm someone. But yeah, I, um, not everyone has the humility so, to do that. But for me, that would be the hope is that with humility that people would, would admit it. And What do you think it takes to demonstrate to someone who's caused harm like that, like on that scale? Because I'm looking, I'm not talking about now Tony Robbins. I don't know much about that situation. Um, I feel like that maybe uh, there's more information that needs to come to light there. But um, with Harvey Weinstein, so much has already been uh, brought to light. And I'm sure there's a lot more that hasn't uh, ever even met the light of day. A lot more stories that have never been told there. Um, but what do you think it takes for a Harvey Weinstein to see the, the consequences of harm? Hmm. I don't, I don't know if it, it, psychedelics, maybe <laughs> like enough plant medicine, like maybe if, if, he had, if he was instead of sent to jail, if he was sent to the jungle and he had to undergo rigorous, you know, plant medicine work, working closely with some power, powerful shamans, maybe he would see the self-hatred he carries or whatever is inside of him that then has led to a life of sucking the leeching the life out of other people or or preying on that innocence or that beauty or that I I don't know if it's I I always this is actually such an interesting question because I still don't know in this in the same token that took me 10 years to go holy shit I was raped at 18 that that was rape I don't know if this person actually truly because like I don't know the the way we approach sexuality and and men and like porn and the pornification of everything does he think he just got a a 18 year old woman drunk and she really desired him and unconsciously she like I have no idea in his mind if he goes I'm a rapist or if he just that was so entitled to my body and and my sexuality that that he just took it from me I, I would love to actually sit down with him and be like, hey, let's, I know this was a long ass time ago, but maybe now that I'm mature enough and I've, I've healed this and I can face this, it'd be really maybe mutually beneficial to have a conversation about this so that in your life as a man, you're not parading around in a way within systems and within the film industry where you're perpetuating this and other men are perpetuating this. And this just keeps going on and on and on. You know, I, I would love to stop that cycle. I don't know. It's a, you've made a very good point there around, do they even know? Um, I, I often wonder this myself. Is there even an awareness um, in those moments that 
they, you know, just because the opportunity is there doesn't mean that consent is present. Like, doesn't mean that, you know, in the absence of a no, that I, that that means yes. Or, you know, if somebody is so um, drunk or, or um, high that they're even, that they even have the capacity to give a good yes, or that in that space of, of lacking consent, do they recognize that the fact that it, there's a lack of consent means that it's rape? You know, I, I do feel like there is deep confusion uh, in a lot of men around that. And there's an uproar around, I would consider them to be very entitled men, thinking that we've taken that too far. That we, you know, the fact that we need consent, that there needs to be a consensual experience um, is, is women asking too much of men. And I'm like, wow, you know, whenever I hear that indignance uh, around consent, isn't that something you want from a woman? Like to be a yeah, full absolutely. and complete yes to you. But I think it's just because sex is still so taboo and we don't have healthy conversations about it. So there's just so much like anxiety collectively um, from all sexes and and what, whatever identification you have. Uh, like we're just not necessarily having healthy conversations about sex. And like when you think about like 99% of exposure to sexuality for most young men is through porn. And you spend five minutes on the internet looking at what, porn is out there and it's pretty obvious to see that thinks that they raped me or not I'm and I I always attempt to be a sex positive person but I just think of it like if I have a son in the future like when my 10 year old or 12 year old son like sees that and then that is the first impression of like oh that's what sex is like that's really going to be confusing that's not teaching our young men and young women about the potential of sacred sexuality and having your sexuality connected to your emotions and your spirituality and being a holistic experience in your life rather than just being this pleasure seeking endless abyss, you know, that it seems to sort of be, yeah, very uh, confusing for a lot of people and terrifying. And most people are terrified to talk about it. You know, it's like always uncomfortable. Even if I'm talking about sex, it's like, Ooh, like you can't talk about that. It's like, no, we ought to talk about it so that we can, I'll get on the same page and start healing some of this bullshit. Considering that every single person walking around was created that way, you think that we would have a, a legit reason to have good conversations about sex and sexuality and about consent and about how, how we want to relate to each other sexually um, and how we can be, uh, you know, free to do so. Like, I, I actually think most porn is pretty costly to the spirit. Um, and maybe that's not a, um, a popular viewpoint. I, I, I don't think all porn is necessarily dangerous, but I think a, a lot of porn out there is, I think that there's a lot of um, trauma that happens when people. Yeah, I think um, porn and cocaine are like similar in my mind. And you can like maybe try it once or yeah. twice or like, yeah, yeah yeah you know they're very similar moon, but yeah no it's not something that is an active part of my life on purpose especially because most sources of it as well are not are highly exploitative 
And I don't want to participate in anything that's harmful to, to other people. I just mean more sex positivity around realms that I'm maybe a little bit like a prude about. Like I, I would love to learn more about different like power aspects of sexuality and friends who practice kink and all sorts of stuff like that. I, I mean, I'm just sex positive in that sense of like, I really try to not have judgment around uh, friends who have healthy sexual practices for themselves that maybe just make me uncomfortable, but that doesn't mean that, you know, I'm judging it. It just is like, it's might not be for me, but that doesn't mean that I think it's bad or anything. If I were to say like the one piece of my healing journey that's made the most difference in my life has been about learning to trust myself again, because I think in a way that's what was entirely eroded in those moments of, of trauma or assault or exploitation and if you don't trust yourself, especially as a woman, like our, our innate, our divine intuition, if you, if you cut that off, yeah, your soul dies. You, you just kind of, your life in many ways and through my 20s, like spun out in so many ways of inauthentic patterns and promiscuity and self-sabotage and, and dark, dark places, all because I wasn't able to really trust myself or feel safe in myself and so I think that's been like the greatest piece has been really healing that and learning how to trust myself again and then feel safe inside myself that's made the biggest difference well you seem to be so um uh embracing of uh, your body and your sexuality like I've noticed on Instagram you have a number of pieces where you're uh where you're dancing like you're showing these pieces where you're just dancing really freely in your living room kind of thing. And, and um, that's really nurturing for me to see women um, like yourself creating that connection and allowing people to see into your world and, and to see into you um, loving your, your movement and your sensuality um, as much as you seem to. Mm-hmm. I'm so happy you receive it that life. way because really it is uh it's been such a nice process learning embodiment going back into my body I sort of realized like wow I'm like when I was 30 I'm like I'm 30 but I feel like I'm 60 like I feel like everything hurts like I had so much like kind of like fibromyalgia type symptoms like pain all over my body and I was just like no I I, I don't want to let my life pass me by and just accept this as normal this pain is just it's trying to communicate something to me and the more I sort of meditated into it and realized how much tension I was holding and emotional tension and trauma I was still holding on to, I found that just, and part of trusting myself was just like not having choreography, like, but just letting my body move and trying to get out of my mind as much as possible and out of my own way, but just letting myself move and whatever it looked like, it didn't matter. It was just about sort of feeling good and and yeah, it's become a really important practice in my life for sure. It's definitely something that is like a non-negotiable for me at this point. If I'm ever feeling a bit off, it's like, okay, got to move my body for 20 minutes, put on some good music and just shake. And uh, it really helps. What do you feel has been, uh, you know, your process around addressing your trauma? Uh, what do you feel has been the most powerful of your modalities that you've incorporated in your healing process? Um, I would say my trip to Ecuador in 2018, where I did like a 14 day, really intensive plant medicine journey at a beautiful place called Casa del Sol outside of Vilcabamba. And Jimena, the shaman I worked with, she's such a mom. She was, she had four children and she's a cancer and she's so beautiful. And we did some really beautiful, um, womb healing rituals and ceremonies. 
But at a certain point during that retreat, I realized that it was me who couldn't forgive myself. I was really holding on to a lot of um, anger and worthlessness inside of myself and just like a refusal to forgive myself. Um, but something happened during that process and during that week where I, I did sort of commune with my own souls, so to speak, and, and really like outwardly in front of the community of, of everyone else that was there. Ironically, I was the only woman in my retreat. It was like 11 men and me, and that had never happened. It was usually always like a balanced number. So I thought, wow, well, this is definitely an indication that I need to heal my inner masculine <laughs> as much as my inner feminine and maybe starting there. But I, I think the moment that I committed to like, I, I forgive you, I, I forgive you, and, and really leaning into that possibility um, definitely opened that up in, in my life. So when I came back and I worked on integration, I mean, integration, I think, is the most important and most overlooked piece of, of these types of journeys, it seems. Um, and the integration, I would say, still is ongoing. I'll still have moments where I'm like, whoa, wow, and something will just become more embodied. Um, but yeah, I guess I feel like that was a big, important piece for me. And now what is the most important piece? I think now the most important piece is just giving, informing my life from within. It's like, like shedding the broken ingenue. And, and, and like I said, like using my power, my voice as a woman and not informing, uh, how I live from the outside in, but rather from the inside out. Cause I, I was always super plagued with like wanting people to like me and feeling like nobody would like me and having this kind of weird identity that lingered around with me that I think I've finally mostly shed or rather than shedding, I've just welcomed it to this shadow to the table. <laughs> it's, it's welcome at dinner now. And now that it's welcome, I feel a greater sense of ease, just trusting being myself. And, and yeah, authenticity has been a big piece. Just being like, you know what? I might be misunderstood my whole life, but I won't be misunderstood by me. And I'd rather honor this feeling, this connection that I have inside of myself to something bigger than myself, whether that's like source or my soul or, or whatever that is. Um, and faith. I think faith was like the biggest piece. I, I really got to such a broken place inside of myself that I didn't want to live anymore. I wasn't, I, I, you know, I had some forms of suicidal ideation. I was fairly confident that I would never act upon it, but I was really, really depressed and didn't, I, I wanted to give up. And somehow, luckily I found my way back to that self-forgiveness and that self-forgiveness sort of led to an ability to have more faith and, in myself and in my future and in the world around me and to yeah trust again. So you've said some really, really important things. Um, Ace, I, I say often to people that um, feeling validated in life as a, a liked person that you are liked and seen, that that's actually not optional. Like we, we kind of, you know, make people wrong for feeling awkward that way or needing that or feeling like they never really had it. So they feel needy for it or they need to seek it when the reality is that 
we we all really need to feel that we're liked and seen. It's not optional. Um, and that part of you that needs to be seen and held, you know, that it's like the tenderest, you know, like it's the tenderest piece of us, that most vulnerable piece of us. And like the rest of us can develop a lot of resist, a, a lot of resilience in the world. Um, but to be liked re requires other people. So it's really vulnerable. And um, I love that you've, you've just shared that, you know, reclaiming that part of yourself it has, has been such a huge healing for you. I think that is a huge mm -hmm. healing for, for most of us. Yeah. And it was nice to finally have that separation between like, um, it, shame was the hardest thing and still is the hardest thing I would say, but it, it's been so nice to be able to like detach from like, I'm a bad person to like these things happen in my life and, and I can heal, I can heal from them. I can, but just because these experiences happen doesn't make me this bad, unworthy person. But yeah. Maybe beyond the forgiveness, the forgiveness piece was like the first like point, but it was sort of uh, facing, you know, 15 years of deeply, deeply embedded shame that probably started even as a little girl because like when I was a, a kid my first years in school I, from kindergarten till grade four I went to a catholic school and my family wasn't necessarily that catholic or religious per se but I guarantee there was definitely subconscious coding and spells and all of that that was certainly probably put on me <laughs> at such a young age that probably did also create some kind of like guilt and shame wiring or something in my brain I love that you're using the word spells um I, I often refer to spells uh, when I'm talking about, um, you know, the narratives that a lot of people carry that, you know, that started off with spell casting on part of whoever happened to want to create a reality and that we often carry these like curses or like spells I have experienced that as well, that, um, feeling somewhat coded or, pro or programmed by spells uh, about being, you know, female or about being uh, what I was supposed to uh, expect from my life. And I'm a bit older than you. So um, some things have changed a bit, uh, a little bit anyway. 70s, um, women were still not, they were still kind of just integrating into working life and, and, getting some traction in the world that way. And um, when I was younger, uh, there were lots of places in the world women weren't. For me, to what I could expect from my life, a lot of that was codified by, by kind of the spell casting of, of the thing that I should want the most is mm -hmm. to be married to someone who will look after me. <laughs> oh, Catholic Church. <laughs> It's been a really awesome conversation and I'm really grateful for you and for it. And um, can you let the good folk who are listening to this podcast know where they might find you for? I could talk to you for hours and I'm also very excited to hear more about your offerings. My Instagram is just my name so it's at ace hicks my website is acehicks.com and it should be the new version all my new portfolio should be live in the next week or two i'm just finishing uh, touches 
And in April, I will be launching the Fearless Female Filmmaker Collective. And uh, so, yeah, I guess in the future, once I know where that's going to land, I will share all of that. But for now, acehicks.com or at acehicks on Instagram is the best place to find me. You've been listening to The Witch's Diagnostic, hosted by Dawn Dancing Otter. If you enjoyed this podcast and you'd like to support our work, please uh, subscribe via patreon.com, The Witch's Diagnostic, and subscribe at the various tiers, $5, $10, or $15 a month. Uh, Those at the uh, premier VIP tiers will be... uh, given the opportunity to have some exclusive content on Patreon. Thank you for tuning in and thank you for subscribing and supporting our work.